In the year 2019, the Friends of Lake Monroe received government grants to develop a plan to protect the watershed of Lake Monroe. The two-year project studied problems facing the lake and created a strategic plan for addressing them. So how do we protect the sole drinking source for over 128,000 residents? What is a watershed development plan and why do we need one? What's the relationship between lake water quality and drinking water treatment costs? And what about those frequent drinking water taste and odor concerns? What is the city of Bloomington doing to help? We'll ask a panel of guests these questions and more right after this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The White House says the contours of a debt ceiling deal are largely worked out, including on discretionary spending and defense spending. But sticking points include work requirements and permitting. The deal would raise the government's borrowing limit for two years, as the New York Times first reported. And a source tells NPR the agreement cuts some federal spending and puts caps on discretionary spending. The source, who spoke on condition of anonymity to describe the behind-the-scenes discussions, also says work requirements is a place where both sides have dug in. But negotiators are said to be close on IRS funding. There are no in-person meetings yet scheduled for President Biden to meet with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, but negotiators continue their discussions today. Texas Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton is facing possible impeachment. A panel in the Republican-led Texas House of Representatives alleges Paxton abused his office. The Texas newsroom Sergio Martinez Beltran reports the Texas House could vote to impeach this weekend. There are 20 articles of impeachment against Paxton. They include constitutional bribery, abuse of official capacity, and retaliation against former employees. The allegations are largely the result of a Texas House investigation into a $3.3 million settlement Paxton is on the hook for. That money would go to four of his former employees who were fired in 2020 after accusing Paxton of alleged misdeeds related to an Austin real estate investor. Paxton denies any wrongdoing and says the allegations are illegitimate. He's been a controversial figure and is known for trying to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. For NPR News, I'm Sergio Martinez Beltran in Austin. A court case about a commonly used abortion pill is making its way to the U.S. Supreme Court. A new poll finds nearly three-quarters of women under the age of 50 do not trust the justices to decide reproductive health issues. NPR Selena Simmons-Duffin has details. The KFF health tracking poll asked more than 1,600 Americans this month about their views on a variety of abortion topics. Most Americans say it would be inappropriate for a court to overturn the FDA's determination that a medicine is safe and effective, the subject of a federal court case now underway. And two-thirds of the public have confidence in the FDA. When it comes to the political parties, 42 percent of people said the Democratic Party represents their views on abortion, compared to just 26 percent saying their views were represented by the Republican Party. And more than half of women under age 50 say they or someone they know have changed their approach to birth control because of concerns about abortion access. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is up 286 points, more than three-quarters of a percent, at 33,051. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations 
Other contributors include Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people sleep well so they can live well. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. Good afternoon. This is regional news coverage from the WFIU Newsroom. I'm Clayton Baumgarth. Caitlin Bernard was found to have violated state and federal patient privacy laws. Indiana Public Broadcasting's Brandon Smith reports Bernard received a letter of reprimand and a fine for charges related to abortion care she provided last year to a 10-year-old rape victim from Ohio. Attorney General spokesperson Kelly Stevenson declared victory for patient privacy. It's not right, and the facts were presented today made that very clear. Bernard and her attorneys didn't speak to reporters after the licensing board's 14-hour-long hearing, but Dr. Tracy Wilkinson, a colleague of Bernard's who sat through the hearing, said the board's decision sends a message to all physicians. That political persecution can be happening to you next for providing health care to your patients. Bernard was cleared of charges that she failed to report child abuse and is unfit to practice. She can appeal the board's decision. For Indiana Public Broadcasting, I'm Brandon Smith at the State House. The owner of the former Colgate property in Clarksville has asked a judge for mediation in an eminent domain case. Indiana Public Broadcasting's April Rickert reports. Attorneys representing the town of Clarksville filed a court complaint in March to try to take the historic Colgate property after the owner didn't accept a $6 million offer to buy it earlier this year. Town leaders say the property is falling into disrepair and that the owner, Clark's Landing Enterprise Investments, LLC, hasn't done much to develop it. In court filings this week, Clark's Landing disputes that. They argue they are still moving forward with development plans, including an aloft hotel, retail, and residential space. Clark's Landing, as well as the Colgate Palmolive Company, have asked for the judge to dismiss the town's complaint and to appoint a mediator. I'm April Ricker in Jeffersonville. For WFIU, I'm Clayton Baumgarth. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Salzberg, along with co-host Lori McRobbie. Today we're talking about Lake Monroe and the Lake Monroe Watershed Management Plan and what uh, we're all doing to protect Bloomington's vital water source. If you have questions or comments, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can also send questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. And when you do contact us, we have four guests that will be answering your questions. Sherry Mitchell Brooker is the, the founder and board president of Friends of Lake Monroe. Vic Kelson is from the City of Bloomington Utilities Department. He's the director of City of Bloomington Utilities. Maggie Sullivan is on the Lake Monroe Watershed. She's the Lake Monroe Watershed Coordinator at the Friends of Lake Monroe. 
And Martha Miller is the district manager for the Monroe County Solid uh, or Monroe County Soil and Water Conservation District. So thank you all four for being here in the studio. It's lovely to have you uh, here in person with us. So I want to start the conversation by um, asking Sherry, uh, as the founder of Friends of Lake Monroe, why was it important to found such a group? And why is Lake Monroe that important to us? Well, uh, yes, I think we, the answer for why we founded Friends of Lake Monroe is because it is so important and it wasn't being taken care of to the level that it should have been taken care of in the past. So, um, you know, the most obvious answer to that question is it's our drinking water. I mean, who who wouldn't think it's important to protect your drinking water? And so um, the um, Monroe County, if you live in Monroe County, Bloomington, Indiana University, all of these people depend on Lake Monroe as the sole source of their drinking water. But in addition to that, some people not, might not realize if they live in, say, Brown or Lawrence or Jackson County that if they're getting water hauled in, that might be coming from Lake Monroe. If you get water from some of these smaller companies that provide water to rural communities, a lot of that water is coming from the city of Bloomington Utilities and coming from Lake Monroe. So this is a vital source of not only just drinking water, there's cooling water, there's water for manufacturing processes like in Cook and Catalan, you know, the breweries that are making beer, you know, all of that that water is coming from Lake Monroe. So it's an essential um, resource for our community. But not only is the drinking water important, but it's also a very important recreational um, resource. We uh, get to go to the lake and enjoy nature. Uh, that relieves our stress and anxiety. It is an economic uh, resource in that the, just the water itself in Lake Monroe has been valued at $150 million. And beyond that, way beyond that, are the economic benefits that come to the community, to the region from Visitors who then come and visit restaurants, gas stations, and all sorts of other businesses. And then finally, the um, habitat that the lake provides is very important and provides a, a habitat for birds and fish and other wildlife, and particularly the endangered bald eagle, which um, was actually endangered because of um, chemical pollution from DDT. And um, people might not know this, but um, the recovery of the bald eagle in Indiana started at Lake Monroe. The eagles were reintroduced at the lake, and that's a big success story. And now we have eagles throughout the state of Indiana. So um, it's an extremely important resource, and it, there are problems. Mm -hmm. We have um, pollution from we have mercury pollution from coal-fired power plants, but the pollution that Friends of Lake Monroe focuses on are those things that we can do more about locally, and that's related to um, soils and nutrients that come from the land that feeds the streams that then feed into the lake. And those soils and nutrients feed algae. And what happens is we get too much. We get an overload, and we get these harmful algal blooms. And when that happens, then the state has to step in with recreational advisories, and those recreational advisories um, tell you not to swallow the lake water, not to uh, 
uh, let your pets or livestock into the lake and um, to take showers afterwards. So that's the lowest level of recreational algae bloom advisories. We're trying to make sure it doesn't get any worse and hopefully get it work, make make it better. Okay. So very quickly, uh, one follow-up. You said early on that you felt like um, the, the lake wasn't being taken care of. Whose job is it to take care of the lake? Well, that's the trick. Tricky question because it's really it's all of our job, and um, there are so many different um, government and and agencies that have a role in protecting the lake. That it's really easy to kind of say, oh, this other agency is going to take care of it, and because we have multiple counties, we have multiple, we have the state government, federal government, within those, you know, the Corps of Engineers, the uh, state parks, the national parks and these are all different organizations so that that's the important role that friends of lake monroe plays is to bring all of these different entities together you know put that plan in place and then put it into action vic is one of those uh government officials who's involved with protecting the lake so uh vic i guess i want to ask you vic kelson from the city of bloomington so you know, Sherry talked about you know, the, the importance of various players to protect the lake. What's your? What do you feel like the city's role is? Well, the city doesn't have a lot of uh, a lot of jurisdiction over the watershed. Uh, the only a tiny piece of the watershed of Lake Monroe actually comes from the city. So, uh, our MS four program—that's the stormwater program—it uh, uh, it really doesn't have too much of an effect. Uh, most of what you know, we are a user of the lake uh, at, at CBU. And uh, the thing that, uh, just to pivot a little bit off of something that Cherry said, people don't realize we get plenty of rain here, but they don't realize that southern Indiana is kind of a desert when it comes to water supply for a community the size of Bloomington or, or even a smaller community. Um, there aren't many creeks. There aren't many rivers. A lot of the uh, streams that we have are ephemeral. They run dry a lot of the time. There are no natural uh, lakes, uh, very limited aquifers. So uh, if you look around you here in, living in Bloomington, we've got Leonard Springs, Twin Lakes, Wapahani, Griffey. Those are all past water projects that the city of Bloomington has done uh, in an attempt to, to, to make enough water supply. So until uh, – until Lake Monroe came along, we really didn't have a water supply that we could point to as being reliable for 50 or 60 or 100 years. And um, so our part in protecting it has, be, has been protecting the small piece of watershed that we have. But also um, in the last seven or eight years, we've started working a lot with, with other local groups and not just Friends of Lake Monroe and, and the Soil and Water Conservation District, but also the Lake Monroe Water Fund is helping to raise money for watershed projects. Um, and, and, of course, we work with our regulators as well. Mm-hmm. well I want to ask Maggie just to define watershed before I – and then I, I think, Martha, talking about what your role is from your agency. So, so yeah. oh. Okay, Martha's going to go oh, first. Yeah, only the only reason Martha Miller, Monroe County Soil and Water. The only reason I wanted to do that is because um, to kind of piggyback off what both Sherry and Vic have said. When you look at a watershed, you have to look at the land use of the watershed. The water is just 
the product of what's happening out on the land around it where the water is shedding to the basin point. And when you look at watersheds, you have to take in the massive amount of types of people and land use that are occurring in order to be able to protect it, which is where plans come from. In Monroe County, there um, there's the upper Salt Creek, which is what feeds the lake. Then there's the lake. Then there's the lower Salt Creek watershed, which has a, a project plan being um, implemented from Lawrence County Soil and Water. Then there's Bean Blossom, and then there's Indian Creek, um, both of which Monroe County Soil and Water is in the process of writing plans for. Um, so you have to look beyond that. And when you get someone who's willing to look at something like this, like Vic said, there are lots of players, but you have to kind of really stop thinking about it as water and start thinking about it as land use. And so that's where the plan comes in. (laughs) So define a watershed for us and talk about the plan. Yes. So a watershed is the area of land that drains to a particular water body. So here we're talking about Lake Monroe. There's three main streams that come into the lake that are creatively named North Fork Salt Creek, Middle Fork Salt Creek, and South Fork Salt Creek. (laughs) And so they have many streams that drain into them. And so there's about 440 square miles of land that when it rains, that water goes into the nearest stream and flows into Lake Monroe. So it's kind of the southeast corner of Monroe County, most of Brown County, and the northwest corner of Jackson County. So that's the area that we're talking about. So a watershed management plan is a document that looks at a water body and also its watershed and says these are the issues that are happening. This is what's happening in the watershed, looking at the land use, looking at the soil type, looking at what people are doing that might have an impact on that water quality, and then laying out a plan or what are some actions we can take to try and protect and improve water quality, not only in Lake Monroe, but all the streams that feed into Lake Monroe. Okay. Yeah, I want to follow up a little bit more on on the uh, Friends of Lake Monroe um, effort, which has resulted in in the watershed management plan that's come forward. And um, Sherry, you were talking about the that really what its mission is is to bring these different groups together that are that all have an interest in one form or another in protecting uh, that watershed and the wa- and the quality of the water and so forth. Was what was happening. Before were there informal efforts to coordinate? It sounds like just from listening to what you're saying is that there there had to be, and so help us understand how Friends of Lake Monroe, uh, what what level that's taking those dialogue that dialogue to, and where you're hoping to go with with what the friends are doing. That given that you're trying to bring everybody together. Yeah, well, um, there have been multiple efforts at forming watershed groups in the past, and. For one reason or another, those didn't quite flesh out. And um, so when, uh, and I had lived away from the state for a while, came back and, and realized that there was no watershed group, which was very strange for a lake of this size and importance. Um, and um, so we started forming the, the group and, and getting, you know, public support and, and local government support. Um, and then we got a grant to write the watershed management plan, hire Maggie to do that. 
And one of the things that comes out, probably to me, one of the most important things that comes out of the watershed management plan is an action plan. It's these are the things that we're going to do. Here's how we're going to try to do them, and here's how we're going to try to get funding to do them, and, and sort of a timeline which is very flexible. So that's kind of where we can start then really getting the public engaged. And one of the ways that we did this just recently was we had a watershed summit where we invited local decision makers from all of the counties that are within the watershed and um, explained the watershed management plan, gave them the action plan and said, what part of this action plan can you help us with? And who do you want to work with? And so... That was a big step. That was an idea that had been um, proposed before Friends of Lake Monroe but never came fruition. It was something I wanted to do from the beginning, and we finally got funding from Community Foundation in Monroe County to make that happen. So so that's the types of things we now need to go back and, and follow up on those uh, commitments from different people to say, yeah, let's make sure you do get together. Let's do these things. And then Maggie is more involved in um, working with people like Martha and Soil and Water Conservation District and NRCS to um, work with the individual landowners to implement um, best management practices like cover crops and so forth on their land. So that is made possible through grants from the, the state government, but it's money that comes from the federal government, from EPA, to uh, the Friends of Lake Monroe. And um, so that's a long-term process. Mm-hmm. We expect to, you know, this, we have an implementation grant that we're working on. We ex- expect to keep work moving forward with that. And more local initiatives like green fishing and shoreline cleanups and stream cleanups, those types of things. You know, just all of the pieces we work on a little bit at a time until, you know, over time we're going to see results. Yeah. And for those who are are interested and haven't seen it, you can go to www.friendsoflakemonroe, all one word, no spaces, dot org, and see the compilation of this work that's gone on. It was published last year, but I'm sure it was obviously a work in progress uh, long before that. I I wanted to follow on a little bit about a historical note. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot of reservoirs in Indiana. Uh, Lake Monroe is probably in better shape than I think any of them in terms of a water supply uh, source. Uh, And and I think we're all fortunate that... uh, uh, Monroe County government has taken the lake seriously ever since it's been there. And mm-hmm. if you if you travel around Indiana and look at other reservoirs, you see lots and lots of housing developments right there at the boundary of the lake. Uh, lake Lemon uh, has a lot of that. But, but if you go to Geist Reservoir or Eagle Creek Reservoir up in Indianapolis or uh, lots of other uh, similar reservoirs in the state, uh, Development has happened there because people love to live right next to the lake. And Monroe County has made conscious decisions for 50 years uh, to keep it from to keep Lake Monroe from looking like Geist, for example. So, uh, because that's part of why our water quality is good right now, and we need to keep it good and make it even better. But uh, we do have to, um, and of course. I'm a former Monroe County elected official, but I uh, it, and and I've I've been very aware of what the county 
uh, county planning department, what the county commissioners have done over the years. And it's been very serious and very intentional. Uh, and it's been a struggle at times. So I just I do want to call out our, our county uh, colleagues for the, the efforts that they've done for more than 50 years. Mm-hmm. Yes. Our uh, phone numbers, 812-855-0811 or toll-free, 877-285-9348. If you want to send us questions, news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can also send them via Twitter or at Noon Edition. Lori, this was your question. Somebody has called it in, um, wants to know how the recent Supreme Court decision might affect Lake Monroe. <laughs> yeah, that was- uh, that, that's specific to Lake Monroe, but we had a conversation before the program about just this decision in general. Who wants to say how it might affect Lake Monroe? Well, yeah, Sherry. well I, I don't think I can speak directly to how it will affect Lake Monroe. Um, I think what's important to understand is is what this decision is really all about. And um, so the Clean Water Act um, regulates uh, navigable water bodies um, in terms of wetlands. And so this debate has been over whether or not there is a direct connection between a wetland and a navigable water body. And if, if there's a direct correct connection to a navigable water body, it's very clear that that um, wetland is under the um, legislation from federal government. Federal government regulates what happens in that wetland and is under the Clean Water Act. But then there are other wetlands that that are um, not directly connected that may or may not have an influence on that downstream water body. And so what this legislation has said is if there is not a direct connection to the navigable water body, then there is um, – the federal government cannot regulate that under the Clean Water Act. Okay. So, so that's what the legislation is. Um, that will shrink the number of wetlands that are, that are being regulated by the federal government. There are um, – different regulations for different states, and our state has actually loosened the protections for wetlands uh, in uh, the state, so that there may be some impact. But without going in and really studying, you know, the individual wetlands and what their, their connection is and so forth, it's hard to say really what this will mean for Lake Monroe. Yeah. It, does this prevent the state from instituting regulations governing non-contiguous wetlands? No. no so, this, so the state of Indiana theoretically could introduce restrictions that would, that would mirror what was covered under the, the Clean Water Act if the state was inclined to yes, do so. Could. Does that authority uh, go to the county level? Local, local planning and has an impact. I don't know that they specifically look for wetlands to put to uh, to uh, in their development plans, but certainly we don't want to build houses where foundations are going to be underwater. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so there's a certain disincentive there. Uh, some wetland, wetlands are wet sometimes and not other times. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I think that the, the local planning decisions could affect um, some wetlands just based on what we're allowing to be built in certain localities. 
there's a certain type of soil that you look for in a wetland as well. So just because a particular area looks like a wetland, maybe it's just holds water and has plants that are very, you know, receptive to lots of water or drier spouts, until you actually pull samples out of there and really analyze the soil, you're not going to know if it's truly a wetland or not. Hence the name wet land. Yeah. <laughs> I Ma- go back to the land issues. So. Maggie, I wanted yeah. to ask you uh, on this same topic. I mean, just give us why are, why are wetlands important? You know, we talked about why the watershed is important. Why are wetlands important? Well, as we talked about earlier, I and mean, one of the things that people will mention is that wetlands help filter water quality, improve water quality. And it's some of them can have much more of an impact than others. And so there's a lot of variation in wetlands. I think is one of the reasons this is complex is what do the definitions mean? You know, how which wetlands are we talking about? How are we defining them? I used to do wetland delineation. So you have to look at the soil. You have to look at is there water there for how much of the year? You have to look at the plants. Are the plants water requiring or water loving and so you have to look at all three criteria before you say it's a wetland and it's there's some gray area it's it was not my favorite job i'll be honest (laughs) Um, but bottom line i think all all of our water is connected you look at the hydrologic cycle and a lot of times we don't see how and can get very complicated is you know where is the aquifer where's the groundwater how does that tie into these water bodies and these wetlands but generally speaking protecting them i feel helps protect water quality uh, and as vic alluded to wetlands are generally not great places to build just from a structural standpoint um, and so i was a little disappointed by this ruling but i understand that there there is some confusion and some disagreement about what what does that legislation mean and how should that be interpreted and enforced mm-hmm. sure uh, and i just want to add um wetlands provide uh besides just filter filtering water they provide very important habitat mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. for birds but uh, other um, wildlife as well and um the wetlands that are associated with rivers they serve as as the overflow. So when you have flooding, when you have these wetlands, that's reducing the amount of um, flooding downstream. And we've lost a lot of those um, riverine wetlands through development, and especially through some of these wetland mitigation programs where they allow you to develop a wetland in one place and and um, then destroy it in another. Uh, so, so they have a lot of value, and um, it is very important. We've lost most of our wetlands, so it is very important to preserve yeah. wetlands. And Martha, could, uh, on that, just if you could expand a bit on your um, your role in terms of what you uh, you're you're part of the county, uh, correct? And sort of. <laughs> <laughs> well, say more about that. I'm I'm curious Thanks to know what what um, I guess, for lack of a better word, what authority you have. Um, to weigh in on these kind of land use questions that affect the soil quality as well as the water quality? Well, that's an interesting question, too. So um, soil and water conservation districts, there's one in every 92 counties in the state of Indiana. They are subdivisions of state of Indiana government. So the board that oversees what I do um, are state elected officials in a, a unique way. And um, I am a county employee that works for that subdivision as a partnership. 
And because the county pays my salary, um, we are granted some money from the state for operational purposes. That could get any more confusing, but we're also housed in a federal office. So with that said, back to your question, um, none of us are regulatory. We have no regulatory authority, and we, we are designed that way. We were designed that way from the beginning. Um, Monroe County SWCD has been around since 1943. Um, Soil Conservation Society, which is now NRCS, was developed by the federal government in the 30s um, after the soil eroded out west, and that's a whole other issue for another topic another day. But the bottom line is the reason that they were designed the way they were was to work with landowners. So it trickled down, um, which is where soil and water districts come in. We really try to find funding sources to help people do projects on the ground that will help address their water concerns or their erosion issues. And we also try to educate people on why they need to make the change. Um, Working with Maggie a lot, trying to get farmers to put cover crop on and use cover crop, that's a whole other topic for another day as well. But... Um, that's a huge, huge component to moving our large production ag into a place where they are looking more at water quality, not farming right up to the edge, allowing the room for those natural overflows or wetlands or f- temporary flooding holds to come back. Um, as Vicki alluded, um, we're, we're sort of very unique here in southern Indiana. Um, we're very spoiled in many, many ways because we don't typically have a need for water restrictions, but yet we don't really have the resources we think we do. Um, up north, they're much more aware of that, where it's flat and they have to deal with ditching and, and irrigation and drainage and things like that. So um, I hope that answered the question. Yeah, that <laughs> explains that role certainly more. I'm going to ask you to put on your headphones because we have a phone call from George, and George is on on hold. He wants to ask – he has an idea, I guess. He wants to ask a question. Go ahead, George. Hi. I'm asking whether it wouldn't make sense and whether it wouldn't be possible to establish a specific conservancy district such as the one that exists for Lake Lemon for Lake Monroe. Maggie, you were kind of nodding. What do you – do you have thoughts on that? I was just thinking about there's a piece of state legislation that's been proposed the last three or four years that would make it easier to establish these. um, I don't think they use the phrase conservancy district, but it's an entity that helps oversee a watershed and protect it. And I believe it did not go through again this year. But there's a lot of interest in this concept, partly because watersheds tend to cross county boundaries and partly because it'd be nice to have an entity that could help raise some money to actually do projects. Mm-hmm. Can you define what is a conservancy district? Can you? I, I think that one of the um, interesting things about a conservancy district is that they have taxing authority. Nice. Okay. And so, so that allows you to do the work that you need to do and has a funding source, as Maggie said. Yeah, the city of Bloomington Utilities... Uh, owns Lake Lemon, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, in I think it was 1999, uh, CBU uh, contracted with the Lake Lemon Conservancy District to have them actually manage the lake. So uh, CBU is not directly managing that lake anymore. We don't use it for water supply at this time. We might in the future, mm-hmm. but uh, but uh, the the Conservancy District, as Sherry said, 
has the ability to uh, raise property taxes that can pay for the work that they do in the lake. So they do a lot of dredging uh, and other activities to maintain the volume of the lake and also to protect the water quality. So to George's question and to Maggie's first response, is there not legislation in place that would allow there to be a Lake Monroe Conservancy district or do we... I think it would be tricky, you know, because it's not like Lake Lemon where, you know, that was a city-owned, um, you know, lake and and it's within one county. We have this, you know, melange of, um, you know, different counties, different, you know, government properties and so forth. And so it would be – and it's much, much larger watershed. So so it, it would be, I think, uh, tough to figure out how to – pull that off. There's a lot of federal jurisdiction there as well. Yeah. So what what is the Corps of Engineers' role with the lake? <laughs> I was just getting ready to ask yeah. Yeah. if okay. somebody could explain a little more for them about how DNR owns part of it and the Army Corps is involved. And they don't actually, DNR doesn't actually own anything. I thought they own some of the property. I don't think so. It's a long-term lease. They yeah. own the water. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So okay. the Corps owns the lake, but the but the the DNR owns the water. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I knew there was something there. <laughs> it, it's, All right, my it is spinning. Mine too. <laughs> <laughs> it it is very complicated. So the lake was built by the Corps of Engineers for the purpose of flood control mm-hmm. and um, water supply, but. The state of Indiana said, we'll pony up some money so that you guarantee us a certain amount of this water that's in the lake for water supply. So the state, that that is, they get to decide what happens. But when it comes to flood control, the Corps can figure out what water levels, how they want to regulate the water levels and so forth. Um, then the Corps bought out the land that was, mo- for the most part, up to the elevation a few feet above the spillway, emergency spillway. So all that land belongs to the Corps, but they have a, an agreement with the Department of Natural Resources of the state of Indiana so that the state manages that land. They, they manage the recreation on the lake. They, manage, they lease out some farmland uh, in the watershed in, on that Corps land. And it, there is just a small section near the office, near the dam, that is managed by the Corps. But then still the Corps does things like shoreline management plan, and they have some oversight. They also have a responsibility for water quality, Mm -hmm. and they do do some water quality monitoring on the Mm -hmm. lake. Okay. And we buy our water from the DNR. Uh, okay. So. I was just going to get specifically to then the water use question. So, so, so the city, the city of Bloomington, is contracting with the DNR in effect for our water supply. That's right. We buy we buy water at our intake uh, every month. We pay a bill um, that's based on the volume of water that we take. And is Bloomington the largest user of the water of the lake? Uh, yeah. For drinking yes. water purposes, I would water. imagine, because it's yeah. the largest. Um, it's it's us, and there's one tiny little utility that only has you know, a handful of customers. Mm-hmm. Maggie, in the uh, the management plan, I want to get a little bit more specific in that. I know when I was, I just glanced through your executive summary, and a lot of talk about algae bloom, a lot of talk about sediment. Uh, what are the what are the issues with those things, and what are the actions that are needed to try to protect the lake? 
So the top three issues that we identified are sediment, nutrients, and fecal contamination, which is indicated by E. coli bacteria. And the sediment and nutrients tend to go closely together. You know, nutrients can come from fertilizer. They can come from uh, manure, whether that's human or animal. Um, but they often come in with the soil, like bound to the soil and get into the lake. Uh, and then the sediment. So the sediment is an issue primarily because it carries those nutrients, but it also does accumulate in the lake. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that reservoirs don't last forever. Um, the fecal contamination, the, most of the testing done in the lake has shown that it's not, they're not at levels of concern in the lake, but some of the streams in the watershed do have elevated levels, and that's something that could become an issue um, quickly. So that's something we are focused on. So our big concern is these harmful algal blooms, which are stimulated by high nutrient loads, warm water temperatures, still water. So we tend to see algae blooms in the late summer, early fall, uh, and it can pose recreational uh, advisories and uh, complicates drinking water treatment, um, which Vic can speak to more than I. And uh, sometimes algae can produce actual harmful toxins. We have not seen that in Lake Monroe, but we're uh, nationwide, that's becoming much more common, and it's a big issue. And it's very hard to predict when that will happen and how that will happen. So generally, the rule of thumb, prevention is way better than dealing with the problem after it happens. So the more we can lower the nutrient levels in the water, we can't really change the weather. We can't control the water temperature in the lake. We can't make it rain. Um, but if we can get those nutrient levels down, that decreases the likelihood that we'll have a big algae bloom and that we would ever see a toxin incident. So, so Vic, are you relying on that work to lower the, the nutrient level to, and your role comes in, you're hoping to get water that you can then treat for drinking purposes, or are you also involved in trying to mitigate some of these uh, we do. We are effects? working on... Uh, it's difficult to mitigate that uh, to to mix the lake or to keep the, yeah. the to keep the water moving, especially in the late summer. It's very difficult. Uh, we've looked into the possibilities of, of of doing that, but it's incredibly expensive to to do that. Um, so we end up dealing with it as a treatment issue. Um, we when I started, uh, there was an issue about uh, disinfection byproducts in our drinking water. Uh, so we've made a lot of process changes at the plant in terms of the way we treat the water. We don't put chlorine in the treatment basins. We put it in at the end uh, in the summertime when the weather's warm. And that reduces the tendency to make these, these chemicals that can be bad for human health. When we did that, uh, algae, of course, became a bigger problem for us because we, we didn't have the chlorine there. Um, but we do see continuing increases in the in the amounts of organic material that's dissolved in the water. Um, over time, that, that can become a problem. We started treating with activated carbon in the summer uh, in 2017. Uh, prior to that, we'd had hundreds of complaints about taste and odor every year, basically since the lake has existed. Uh, but when we started treating with activated carbon, those complaints completely went away. We didn't have a single one for almost five years until uh, we had a really long, hot, dry spell in uh, 2021. And, and then all of a sudden, we had taste and odor. And it was like, 
It had never. It was like it had never happened before. Everybody had forgotten <laughs> yeah. that it ever happened in the past. Um, and then it happened again in, in 2022. Uh, and basically, it's it's what Maggie said. If we get a rain event, it 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 takes that all away. The moment, if we get a quarter of an inch of rain, that all goes away. And it occurs to me that when we talk about climate change, there there are lots of effects happening at once. It's the accumulation of nutrients. Uh, Blue-green algae actually uh, fix nitrogen from the atmosphere as well, which adds more nutrients to the lake. Um, and then um, as we get long, long dry periods during the summer, five or six or seven weeks, uh, I remember I've lived in Indiana since 1981, and it's always every couple weeks there's a nice wave of thunderstorms that goes through. The last two summers we've had really long stretches without rain and it's at the ends of those those stretches that we've seen these two uh these two uh onsets of taste and odor but when it rained it went away right away so uh uh what we're doing now is all we can do is treat for it so we're doing uh process testing chemical testing trying to figure out how uh if we do get another one of these blooms uh, how we can get rid of that taste and odor issue at that time. Because the rest of the time, our water tastes great. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I uh, part of our, our member of our family was visiting and um, turned the tap on during one of those events, looking so looking forward to her first glass of Bloomington water in a long time. And, yeah, well, she how, didn't enjoy that. How do you how do you address the sedimentation issue? Well, I think it's important to say that you're never going to stop sediment coming into the lake. I mean, streams by nature move sediment. That's their job. And our reservoir, much as we love it, is not a natural thing. It was built. And so you're always going to have some sediment movement, but we can try to minimize it. And so some ways to do that are looking at land use in the watershed and different activities that increase the amount of sediment. So we're very fortunate in that our watershed is over 80% forested, and intact forest does a good job holding that soil into place. Um, We don't have much urban areas, unless you count Nashville as a a big urban city. Uh, There's a little bit. And then um, we do have some farming, and it tends to be close to the creeks because that's where the land is flat. You know, we all know how hilly Brown County is, and really the whole watershed is like that. And the soil is pretty erodible, so it's... I've heard someone say, you know, you learn in geology class that mountains are formed by rock pushing up. The hills in Brown County were formed by hills eroding down. And so we'll never get rid of that sediment completely. But some things we can do, we look at farming in particular, they get picked on, but it's kind of the low-hanging fruit because if you're putting in a crop – The traditional way is to come in and to till the soil in the spring, expose that bare soil, put the seed in, and wait for it to plant. Uh, It used to be in the fall they would harvest the crop and then till the soil again and leave bare soil through the the winter. And that's very uncommon now. People have figured out that that doesn't make sense. But we can do some steps to go further to protect, like planting cover crops. So that's where you harvest your corn or your soybeans, and then you come in and you plant a second crop. That it's not going to be a cash crop that you sell, but it's going to grow. It, the roots are going to stabilize the soil. It's going to provide some protection. You know, we talked about climate change is giving us more hot, dry summers. It's giving us much wetter winters and heavy rainstorms in the winter and spring when there's not a lot of vegetation. So as much as you can have, that will help protect the soil. Uh, and then things like putting, leaving buffers of 
permanent vegetation along the streams so that if you do have a tilled field, there's a little bit of protection that will filter that runoff before it enters the stream. Um, and some of these things apply to just landscaping as well. You know, we try to discourage people from mowing all the way to the edge of the stream. It's better to have some taller native vegetation that's got longer roots, that's got the plant mass above the water to provide some filtration. Um, and then stream banks is another source of erosion that is harder to deal with. Uh, like I said, a lot of that movement is natural, and we've got really highly erodible soil. But making sure the stream banks are vegetated where we can, uh, helping people deal with you know, log jams that fall that then redirect the stream, trying to minimize some of those events that can cause large amounts of sediment to move. Yeah. Something. Oh. Go ahead. Well, I also wanted to um, add that wetlands can really be a great filter of sediment. And so one of the things that we're looking on is at is a long-term uh, idea at this point. It's just an idea that we could actually create wetlands on some of the major uh, inlets into the, the lake that would capture that sediment and the nutrients that come with it. And if we were able to do that, that could be a huge change, a huge improvement in, in terms of the amount of sediment and nutrient that's delivered to the lake. Yeah. So um, one thing we like to tell people so that they know is that the number one pollutant in Indiana waters by volume is sediment. And it's, it's an ongoing thing. If you look at the hypoxia zone in the Gulf of Mexico, you're going to see clearly where that those lines are at, and it's sediment and nutrients attached to the soil, as Maggie said earlier. Um, a little bit back to the low-hanging fruit of the farmers. They are a good target because they're visible. We can see what they're doing. But um, we do something since the early 80s. Um, we do what we call a tillage transect, and we make a trip around the county twice a year in the fall and the spring. We check the same fields, the same spots, year after year after year, looking to see what their tillage use is and to see if there's cover crop, to see what they're doing. And one of the things that we encourage through soil and water is to try to get these guys to look at the long-term benefit of cover crop. But financially, there's a draw there. So we're rotating back around to that whole connected to the money thing um, and then finding the benefits through grants and things like that to help offset these costs. So I could talk for hours about that. But the other thing is invasive species. And that definitely has an impact in the forested areas um, because their root systems are very shallow and we don't think about them as being a contributor to soil loss, but they are. Um, it is also something we are never going to stop. We are only going to be able to control. So I'll just throw that in there. Yeah. <laughs> so in the time we have left, um, we, I think we all hear and know, because Lake Monroe was, was uh, human-made, that has a finite lifetime. So if you can each speak to what you see going forward in terms of the long-term viability of that reservoir. And Maggie, I don't know if you want to share. Sherry, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, well I want to start out by kind of trying to dispel a myth because, and Vic, it was 100 years, is that yeah. right? That the Corps, when the Corps does a project, they have to do a cost-benefit analysis. And so they have to have a planning horizon. So they said 100 years. We'll say the lake's going to last 100 years. And they did their cost-benefit analysis based on that 100-year timeline. 
that doesn't mean that they predicted that the lake would only last 100 years. That just means that that was their kind of planning horizon. Um, we have not gotten the kind of data that we need to in terms of um, how much sediment is in the bottom of the lake. That's a survey that is called a bathymetric survey in which you would map the bottom of the lake and get a map of the topography of the bottom of the lake. And that would tell us a lot about how far we've um, gone in, in the past 50 years. Um, we haven't been able to get funding for that. So if there's any funders out there, <laughs> you know, this is an expensive project, but something that we need to do. And our science committee on Friends of Lake Monroe is looking at the possibility of doing this through some community science um, um, participation, if nothing else comes up. But um, that's that's that piece of information, that bathymetry map, and also being able to um, look at the shoreline erosion and categorize how quickly that um, shoreline is eroding are two pieces of key data that we don't have to be able to say how long this lake is going to last. But by comparison, Lake Lemon was built in 1952, so it's just about 80 years old. Uh, and if you the the lake, uh, the Brown County portion of the lake basically is very much silted in to the point where. The water is really only a few inches deep in most of that area, and they're they're doing a lot of dredging to try to to protect the lake volume. Uh, in Lake Monroe, there are some places where there's sediment, quite a bit of sediment. You can see it, and there are other places where where not. And I think, that, if I remember right, the the lake opened in 1965. 60, was when it was completed. The okay. water plant opened in 67. Okay. All right. Um, but back to, to Lori's question, not so much about the um, the lifetime of the lake, but what what should we we all be doing personally? What should we, you know, what can we all do? We've you've made quite a case about how important the lake is. What can individuals do to help uh, make sure that it's as as clean as safe as you know? Are, are there things that we can all do, Maggie? I would say we always encourage people to join Friends of Lake Monroe. We are a nonprofit, and we depend on income from membership as well as from grants. Uh, and Friends of Lake Monroe also offers some different volunteer opportunities throughout the year. Uh, we have an ongoing shoreline cleanup project, cleaning up trash at Payne Town, which unfortunately there is trash to clean up every month. Um, and we have had some citizen science projects where people go out and do some monitoring and some measurements, and we're working on getting a few more of those lined up. You know, people who are in the watershed, and I, Martha alluded to this earlier, you are, wherever you live, you are in a watershed, but you may not be in the Lake Monroe watershed. There's somebody downstream from you. So if you have a septic system, make sure you are maintaining it, having it pumped and inspected every three to five years. Uh, that is one source of nutrients and fecal contamination, especially if they fail. Um, and then some of the things we talked about with landscaping, you know, at home, minimize your fertilizer use, leave plants growing along the stream. Grow native. <laughs> and, and even if you're living in the city, mulch your leaves, mulch your grass. Yeah. Don't mm -hmm. blow it off in the street. Mm -hmm. uh, where it ends up in, in the storm, in, in storm sewer or in uh, mm -hmm. or, yeah. or in the creek, right? Yeah. So you 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 really want that organic material to stay in your in the soil of your yard, right? Uh, and you really should take take advantage of the fact that you have it. Yeah. We have a question that that just came in about um, a particular landowner, Joe Huff, 
uh, who owns 250 acres near the lake. It's been in a lot of news. The question is just, does anybody know why? One, he wants to know why doesn't the county lean on him for more access? Anybody have any answer? You guys aren't county officials now, and everybody's shaking their head. <laughs> no, nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna take well, that. Sorry, out. Nicholas. Uh, <laughs> Nicholas asked that question. Yeah. But the long term for the water supply, for the drinking water supply, is uh, as the water chemistry changes, the way we have to treat it will change. The longer it takes for changes to happen, as Maggie pointed out, the lake won't last forever. These, these changes will happen over time. We want them to happen as slowly as possible. Um, and uh, eventually, the, you know, from, from the, my perspective as the at utilities, the question isn't whether we can make drinking water from Lake Monroe. It's what's it going to cost? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder if I can just – I'm sorry, Sherry, if you wanted got to one minute add to, to that. Go ahead. I was just going to really make an observation maybe as a, as a kind of final comment. As, as it just coincidentally this morning, I was uh, uh, entertaining a friend who was an alum of Indiana University who happened to have been one of uh, Eleanor Ostrom's first graduate students back in the late 60s. And as you know, her whole – research area, what she got the Nobel Prize for, was refuting the the, uh, tragedy of the commons. And, of course, Lake Monroe is a wet commons. Mm. And and her research showed how important it is for local entities to come together to manage a shared resource. So I just want to say you are living out Eleanor Ostrom's research, (laughs) her vision, her ideas, and you are all to be congratulated. And I I'm going to go to the website and join the Friends of Lake Monroe myself. And I would just say I, th- I hope everyone living here and depending on that water supply for all of our needs um, might do the same. All right. We're out of time unless, Sherry, if you had one thir- well, 15 seconds. Very quickly, um, to add to what everyone else has said, what can you do? You can um, ask your local officials, your local government to get involved, to support uh, Lake Monroe and, and make sure that um, there are regulations in place to protect the lake and that they are actively involved in protecting the lake. All right. With that, we're going to have to close the show. Thank you to Sherry Mitchell-Brooker, Vic Kelson, Maggie Sullivan, and Martha Miller. For Lori McRobbie, our producer today, George Hale, engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.
You're listening to WFIU Bloomington with translators W270BH at 1019 in Bloomington, W264AL at 100.7 in Columbus, W269BU at 1017 in French Lick, West Baden, W255BG at 989 in Greensburg, W291AM at 1061 in Kokomo. W261CM at 100.1 in Seymour, and W236AE at 951 in Terre Haute.